I really want to be at the table because I know nothing about us without us, and I know how I can make systemic change. I've been through the system, through the criminal justice system. I've been through housing. I've been through everything, and I know where the cracks in the systems are, and I know how to make those systemic changes, but they don't really care. It's like a battle. Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. If you call 911 because of a broken arm, you get an ambulance. But if you call 911 because of a mental health emergency, in most jurisdictions, you get armed police officers. The consequences of those encounters can be fatal. People experiencing a mental health emergency make up one of every four people killed by police. And once race is added to the picture, those numbers can quickly become even more alarming. A new report from the Front End Project a collaboration among Fountain House, the Center for Court Innovation, and others, looks at how mental health emergencies are currently handled and lays out a vision for transforming those responses, for example, by relying on peers, people who've experienced mental health crises, rather than police. The work puts racial equity and the expertise of people with lived experience at the center of every recommendation. And it also asks how, long before the point of a mental health crisis, we should be responding collectively to a problem that affects so many of us. To talk about this work, I was joined by three people who were part of it. Dr. Ashwin Vassen is the president and CEO of Fountain House, a national mental health nonprofit. Karis Myrick is a mental health advocate and executive, currently the co-director of the Mental Health Strategic Impact Initiative at the Jed Foundation. And Christina Sparrick is a mental health advocate deeply experienced in the issue of mental health response in New York City, and she's also a trained mental health peer. And I should say, Christina and Karis are two of the people with lived experience who contributed to the report, and you're going to hear some very powerful testimony from both of them in what follows. But I started the interview by asking Ashwin Vassen about the extent of people living with mental health needs in the U.S., and then how the pandemic has affected that. Even if you don't experience diagnosed and diagnosable mental illness, you definitely know someone who does, and you're probably related to someone who does. So there is this kind of universalist piece to this, but within it, like with everything in this country and in the society, it's regressive at times and unequal. But overall, we've seen a massive uh, increase in overall mental health diagnoses due to a lot of structural issues and man-made issues economic inequality, racial injustice that has always been there, but is increasingly, frankly, worse in some ways, you know, housing insecurity, health insecurity. And so we're seeing this increasing rise. And that was all due, that was all before the pandemic. And then the pandemic hit and really just split that even further apart. Depression and anxiety rates are two to three times as high as they were pre-pandemic rates of, at least at different points during the pandemic, rates of mental health crisis calls at one point thousands of percent higher than they were. You know, it's an issue that has historically been so deeply stigmatized and pushed to the side of our society and our public discourse. And it's finally feels like it's starting to change. Finally feels like there's an ability to talk about this in public, because I think people are starting to see the connections between our mental health 
and all of these other areas of society, our schools, our jobs, our economy, our criminal legal system, our healthcare system. And they're finally saying, enough's enough. This place is hard to live in. This country is too hard to live in for too many people. And we're traumatizing people and we're making things worse due to our policy and political decisions. And I think we're at the beginning of that wave. So a question then for Christina or Karis. I mean, as, as Ashwin has just laid out, we know that the experience of mental you know, mental health issues is really affected and divided by, by race. What do we know about access to treatment and, and therapy, how that breaks down in terms of, you know, income and, and, and race? I mean, I've doing the research for this episode, I ran into this phrase, treatment deserts. This is Christina. So I know like in, um, particularly in communities of color, particularly Brownsville in East New York, they have health deserts here, where they have a, a lack, they have liquor stores in every corner, but they don't have mental health clinics and resources to help people in the community. And so the community is, is over-policed and people end up being, you know, arrested more. For me, particularly when it comes to like um, being misdiagnosed, I remember my, one of my first breakdowns because I was discriminated in a, a white, uh, white male dominated workforce. I ended up in a hospital and I had my first white male psychiatrist. When I was explaining to him about how I was being mistreated in the workforce and, you know, sexual harassment, you know, my race and everything, he didn't believe me. And so when he brought in his students and they just looked at me and like, oh my God, there's something wrong with her, as opposed to like, what happened? They weren't like showing any compassion to say, oh my God, how can we help you? You know what's going on? Let's try to help make you better. Instead, they were like looking at there was something wrong with me. So they misdiagnosed me as schizophrenia with schizophrenia because me saying something about white people, it was that white fragility thing. It was like, they felt uncomfortable with me talking about, oh my God, white folks that did this to me and oppressed me and did this to me. So they misdiagnosed me and over-medicated me. So even though you had access to care, you didn't have access to like culturally competent care. Exactly. And so Karis, the topic of the report, which is part of what we're talking about today, is how do we respond really as a society to mental health crises? And too often the people who respond are law enforcement but I thought we should talk about first, like, what is a mental health crisis and, and really who gets to define that? Because a lot hinges on, on how that gets presented in the moment, right? Yeah, I think um, that was the beauty of that being our first step in the front end um, report is we think about the word, you know, mental health crisis, mental health emergency, as if we are all have the same definition in our head. And, and quite frankly, we thought, well, maybe we need to kind of back her up a little bit and start with kind of how would we define that? And let's start with people with lived experience to see how people with lived experience might define it. Right now, the way that it generally works is it's defined by somebody else. They've made a call to 911, right? They've, they've called the police. They've made a call generally to 911. Different jurisdictions have different things, but majority of people you may not know what that is. So they'll call 911 and um, it'll be, well, there's a disturbance or, you know, oh, they're too loud or they're screaming at themselves and um, it's an emergency. Or sometimes, you know, the person is so agitated that um, we don't know what else to do. You need to come over here and control that person. So that sort of starts us down the road of the team. If it's a, you know, police team, for example. So they're already kind of going in with the information that may proceed what's really going on. 
that there may be sort of danger or there's, you know, something going on where we'll have to protect everybody versus kind of starting with, well, tell me what's going on. Tell me what's happened to you. Let me understand the situation. Let's sit down and kind of unpack what's going on and what would be most helpful for you at this time. That generally doesn't happen. Usually it goes a lot faster than all of that, especially if uh, police who have not been trained are involved. And Christina, could you talk a little bit about, I mean, the contrast between what people need when they are undergoing a crisis such that someone has called the police? So what people need, what would help them versus what they typically get from police? Well, every crisis response is different. And that's why I was saying that we need more preventive and intervention. That's more important than having a crisis because a lot of times the signs are there, but people are letting, people who know the person are letting it escalate. It could be, you know, you coming home to uh, your wife or your husband who just irritates you because you're in a domestic violence relationship. It could be any reason, or you walking past the ice cream store where you were assaulted by and you just get triggered, something. But a crisis um, response uh, episode can look different. Like for me, my, I live with bipolar disorder and I'm getting manic and where my, I have racing thoughts and rapid speech and it dispense where I can't even hear my own thoughts. Like everything is racing in my head. And that small little voice is saying, Christina, just calm down, just calm down. And I start screaming at myself and I just can't stop it. And I keep pacing around my house. And so eventually the police would come because I'm just like ranting and I know I need help. And I hate hospitals because to me, the hospitals are just like being in prison. You get in, get locked up, you get drugged up forming from the mouth and you have no control whatsoever. And they just monitoring your behavior and they get to control when you go home. And so when police come, they come in with guns, they come in with uniforms, it's embarrassing, they're banging on your door and that escalates, that noise now you're like high. And so just hearing that even more at night, it just heightens the intensity of your, your episode, right? And so now they come in and they have commands, right? It's like, sit down, what's going on, whatever, whatever. Now, when you're in an emotional state, you can't respond to commands at all. And so they're looking for voluntary compliance. And if they don't get the voluntary compliance, they're going to take you in to jail or to a hospital. But if you're able to calm down as quickly as you can, you can stay home. But since you're in a crisis and already escalated it, it's hard to get back down. But if a peer were to come and knock on your door, there'll be more of a gentle approach. They would speak one word at a time. Hi, my name is Christina. Slow. Just trying to get, you know, eye contact. It may not get eye contact, but I'm here, you know, to support you. Your, you know, your mother called and she was just concerned about you. Gentle, right? May not get that contact. Take your time. Do you mind if I stand at your front door? Person may not respond, but you stand at the front door because you want to make sure they're safe. And then like 15 minutes later, you may just ease your way in. And mind you, if you spoke to the mom, you, the mom would have said, you know what, um, my son, because I, I, I would ask, what is his favorite treat? What's his comfort food? Because I'm a foodie too. He may say um, Baskin Robbins ice cream. So I may just go to Baskin Robbins ice cream. By the time I probably get to the house, it probably melted anyway. So, but as I'm like trying to talk the person into a more calmer state, I'll be like, you know what? I got some Baskin Robbins ice cream. And it may just get them out of that that situation and they may come to me and even if they're still in crisis they may not even talk to me but they may grab the ice cream so that's the start because it's about redirecting that thought whatever thought is going on and I'm meeting them where I'm at because I'm no better than them I know I'm a, I've been through crisis I know what crisis looks like so I'm just trying to just 
calm them down somewhat and, st and they start to talk, I'm just listening to their needs because usually it's an unmet need. It's like, oh my God, I lost uh, my job. Yeah, something's going on in my life. And then that's where I pick up and I said, you know what? I may have been near too, or I've been near too. And this is what I did to get out of that situation. Um, it may not help you, but you know what? I will be here to help you get out of your situation. Is that okay? Because what they really, people really want is a connection and support so they can get out of a situation. And once they have that trust, then things would, I, my, things would get better. Ashwin, I mean, it strikes me that police responding is right out of the gate, sort of criminalizing people having a mental health issue. And then when you add the issue of race to it, which is a big focus of the report, there's a kind of double bind of criminalization, right? Because we know people of color are very often criminalized out of the gate uh, in the eyes of police. The systems we currently have and 911 as a gateway to that system is deterministic. And people don't realize that there's only a certain range of outcomes that can occur when you call 911. Most of them are punitive in some fashion. They're not about the person and choice and agency and dignity. They're about, we've been called because someone else has framed what you're going through as a crisis. Not because you've asked for our help, because someone else feels uncomfortable. So if we say, if we assume that that person doesn't, nor should they, no member of the community should be expected to be a mental health expert. But then do we offer them other options? Not really, right? We say, call 911 and we'll figure it out. And that's really what mental health crisis response is today. It's not surprising then that we get so many tragic outcomes, that we get so many just not the right outcomes, even if they're not tragic, they're just not correct. And that those outcomes are racialized in the same way that everything in our policing system and law enforcement system and criminal legal system is racialized. And I think what the report did so well is say, how can you have this conversation narrowly without tackling the toxic intersection of mental health crisis response and mental illness with law enforcement reform, police reform, criminal legal reform, and racial justice. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me if you're having a mental health crisis, probably the last person you want to see is a police officer. And that's got to be particularly true if you're a person of color. I mean, given the history and the volatility of those encounters in this country. Karis, I think you've experienced this yourself in wellness checks from police officers. Could, could you talk a little bit about what you learned personally from that? Yeah, and I, I think that is so true on so many different levels that, you know, even even a trained police officer, you know, they're a police officer, right? And um, as a black person, I'm African American, you know, a police officer comes to my door, police officers behind me when I'm driving my car, you know, the anxiety level rises. And so myself, you know, my first uh, time that I was, you know, really not doing well at all, you know, at all, a wellness check was called. And I didn't expect to see a police officer kind of at the door. And, you know, they were loud, really knocking on my door all loud. And I lived in a very small apartment building. And, you know, they were just announcing all like bold, please, wellness check. And I'm thinking, hush, like, be you know, like, be quiet. No, 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 you can't. Like, I don't want my neighbors to hear this. You know, thinking that my neighbors who I was the only black person in the building, my neighbors are now in their mind sort of conjuring up well, what's she over there doing? That criminal, that, you know, drug addicted black person, that stereotype. So reluctantly, I did not want to open the door, but reluctantly I opened the door so that they would stop yelling in the hall. 
you know, the whole experience was really just bizarre. I, I hate to say it. I don't know how else to say it. But um, they ended up saying that I was a danger to myself and um, said that I needed um, hospital care straight away. I mean, to be clear, this is a police officer, a police basically officer. diagnosing you. Yeah, saying that I needed um, uh, to be hospitalized. And um, I'm thinking, uh, okay, well, so this is how one gets to the hospital. Um, so I said, well, let me go get some like pajamas and some, no, 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 we can come back and get that later. So, so then it started off with, you know, first they're at the door, they're screaming. Secondarily, they're not telling me the truth. Yet everything about kind of um, part, being able to participate in um, your treatment and your treatment team, even if it's a police officer at the time, it should be built on trust. So they broke it from the very beginning. And then um, they um, handcuffed me behind my back. I asked, could I please, I didn't understand that. And they said, oh, we have to, it's in our regulations. And I said, well, I have to walk outside in front of all my neighbors. Can you handcuff me in the front and like drape like a coat so that just looks like I'm carrying my coat? They said, no, they couldn't. So anyway, they um, transported me, handcuffed um, behind my back, took me to the police station first, which was didn't understand that and handcuffed me to a chair. They had to deal with this uh, African-American young teenager who had stolen his grandfather's gun. And I've never seen a gun. And there's this gun sitting on the table locked in a police gun case while they're telling the grandfather to come and get the uh, grandson. And I'm in my mind going, okay, they said I needed to go to a psychiatric hospital. They said that I'm in danger to myself. They say that I'm sick, but I'm sitting here handcuffed to a chair. How, this doesn't even make any sense in my mind whatsoever. So then I started to wonder, well, how sick am I if I can't make, if I can't make sense of this? Ultimately, that actually started me down this kind of road of never wanting to accept acute care I, I was able to see my psychiatrist and, and the like, but as far as like anybody talking to me about psychiatric hospitalization, off the table. I, and I unfortunately was hospitalized um, involuntarily um, at least a dozen more times because I thought that's what hospitalization was. So it does have a, a lasting effect. It's kind of like, what do they say? Um, you only have one time to make a first impression. Well, that was the one time and it was a pretty bad first impression. Christina, you were shaking your head a lot during Karis's story and looking pretty uh, appalled. I, I, I take it this is precisely why you work so hard to have peers and people with lived experience being the ones doing the responding and not police officers making diagnoses on the spot, right? Yeah, Karis, I wish, I'm sorry you've been through that experience. I wish I was yeah. support you for that. Yeah, I would have been your advocate. Yeah, I mean, when that first happens, um, you you don't understand a lot of what's going on in the in the mental health system. It's kind of like you're fast-tracked on this education around language. And then I had to think of it sort of in a race frame. When I show up someplace, people see me as a Black person, Black woman. And then you have to kind of understand how I'm working towards my recovery in this cultural frame. And my family is very important to me, though they're not here. I live in California, though they're not here in California. Um, how to and when to involve my family also became something of a conundrum. And we weren't using things like psychiatric advance directives. You know, a wellness recovery action plan with your psychiatric advance directive helps everybody um, on your treatment team, your family members, your allies, peer supporters, kind of understand what your preferences are, especially when you're in crisis versus that being a guessing game. 
I mean, those are the kind of things that we recommended in the front end report as well when we're looking at what are some of the solutions, you know, trained peers on mobile crisis teams, um, you know, peers on um, the uh, warm lines and, and hotlines to be able to respond to calls that come in, as well as things like um, wellness recovery action plan and um, psychiatric advance directives. Psychiatric advance directives are one of the potentially most powerful interventions that no one's talking about enough as a way to traverse the very real gap between knowing and understanding and respecting the person in front of you. While we talk about aligning police and defunding the police or reinvesting the police and or creating these certain teams and cahoots and the different possible iterations of a solution, there's a very person-centered solution that we should be also equally lifting up. That is, get a person to talk about what they want and write it down and, and codify it and make it legal so that at their moment of greatest need, should that arise, their wishes are clear. Christina, you were, did you want to talk at all about the role Fountain House like played for you? Because it occurs to me, I mean, one of the things this report makes clear is like we need like more social infrastructure so that we're not just focused on a crisis moment, but we're we're trying to support people more broadly. And and for you, I mean, Fountain House was kind of an example of that. No, no, Fountain House. I've been a member of Fountain House for about maybe five or six years. And what I like about Fountain House is that you don't have to be like so called well. When I show up in other settings, professional settings, or even like a lot of times with my friends, I always have to say, pretend that I'm always well. And it's hard to like be an actress all the time. I want to come into a place where I feel like I'm having a bad day or a moment and I could speak to another peer specialist and say, you know what, Christina, you, you want to talk about it. I see that maybe you're not, you know, you, you may be uncomfortable or something's going on because I've already built that rapport and trust with that person. And they could sit, they'll know me and then they'll sit down and we'll have an honest conversation and they'll just listen to me and I'll maybe ranting and they won't respond because they may say, well, I know Christina, she just wants to rant. Or she may say to me, or he or she may say to me and say, look, Christina, do you want me to say anything or you just want, to, want me to listen to you? Because that's that's what that's a, what peer support is about. And it just may listen for like a half hour. There's no time limit on developing that relationship with the peer. I mean, I've been in situations where like, my peer specialist there, she said, even went to court to me because I was so scared to go to court because I know how when you go into a court system, judges automatically say, okay, or people in court say, like, oh, well, since you have a mental health condition, the first thing they say, did you take your medication? And they shouldn't stigmatize me. Who says I need medication? Who says I'm not, what's, I'm the so-called off today? Maybe you're off today. And so having that support there from like when I walk through the door, from when I, I have the phone number of my peer support system, going to a court or just having me just sit in sitting in their facilities all day, just, you know, just relaxing or doing, going to the gym or just meeting with other people who are just like me, just being, feeling safe and not always feeling like I have to be perfect. That's what I like about Fountain House. Karis, with all the, the funders and the organizations that are working around the sort of mental health space these days, um, do you feel like the issue of race is taken on squarely enough in the actions that they're taking and the conversations they're having, or, or is there a tendency to try to kind of skate over it? So I think a couple of things are happening. And um, Ashwin, you know, clearly said at the beginning, which I thought was 
you know, very powerful around, you know, this is a moment in time that we haven't seen um, where everybody has finally wrapped their head around talking about mental health and making it something that anybody could talk about. So I think what happened in mental health is, you know, we've always wanted to figure out the appropriate role of police in emergency or crisis response. So if people are talking about, wow, let's do some police reform, then I think mental health said, yes, let's talk about police reform as it pertains to mental health, but hasn't done a very good job of saying, and that police reform is grounded and must be grounded um, and centered on black and brown people who have such disparate um, outcomes when it comes to police interactions. Again, I think that's the beauty of the front end report. It's the beauty of kind of the work that I'm doing with um, the Mental Health Strategic Impact Initiative is to ensure that the work that we're doing when we're working with um, philanthropists and funders and others that you know we have to center it on race equity as well as lived experience. The other thing that can happen too is a lot of things are done without benefit of hearing from the recipient of that service, the recipient of that program. So, and those are the people with lived um, experience who should be part of that co-design, co-development, reform um, efforts and so forth. Ashwin, if we're turning to look at sort of solutions, recommendations here for either sort of reforming or or rebuilding our, our whole response to mental health, in the most concrete and pragmatic terms you can muster, what steps would you say need to be taken to get from where we are now to the right kind of crisis response system and and really a, a better approach to mental health in general? There's a reason we call the project the front end. We didn't want to just talk about this as narrowly about how to reform the services that people receive at the moment of crisis, you know, we outline kind of key principles in the report. One is crisis systems have to center racial justice and equity. How do you ignore this if we have a system that leans disproportionately on law enforcement to solve health issues? How do you disentangle that from racist policing or racist law enforcement? Number two is crisis response systems have to be embedded within holistic and integrated health and public health systems with high quality, accessible and equitable services. This is kind of what both Christine and Karis alluded to is that it wasn't just that the moment of response was wrong, but then the care they received downstream was wrong. It was not culturally competent, it wasn't sensitive, and it didn't lead to better outcomes, health, healthier outcomes. Number three is that people in crisis have to have every opportunity to maximize their choice, self-determination and autonomy. But it's not just at the moment of responding to a crisis, it's in defining a crisis, as Karis has so elegantly taught us all and educated us all in that moment, and Christina as well, is who gets to decide? Who gets to decide when something's a crisis? Uh, You know, one of the greatest stigmas of our approach as a society to mental illness much in the way our society has responded to people of color is that it's entirely founded on a predominantly white framing of what makes us afraid. People suffering with, living with serious mental illness make us feel at times uncomfortable. And we've designed our entire system, not around them, the person in need, but around the comfort of the person feeling uncomfortable. Why are mental health initiatives growing in number and size, it's because 
people see more homeless people on the street or people see people in the subways or people are concerned about quote unquote public safety. So the, the motivations behind this are not always good, even though programming may flow from this. Next thing is crisis responders should really focus on creating trusting relationships. You have to have peers. This isn't just rhetoric. It's borne out in the data. Peers build trust. They form durable relationships. They're more likely to drive someone into a healthier outcome and response. And they keep people engaged, right? They make people feel safe. Law enforcement should not be the default or primary responders to mental health crisis. I think that's a pretty obvious point that we've all highlighted, but it has to be agreed on and it has to be socialized throughout our systems. Because if you look at crisis response across the country, it's all over the place. I mean, Karis, once once we start talking about mental health and pull on that thread, obviously we, we start pulling on a lot of other deep threads of American life and inequality and, and racism and disparities in access to housing and stable employment. And obviously all of those things need to be strengthened if we're going to strengthen our response to mental health. I, I don't know, is that how you see it? And, and is there a way to talk about it that can still feel actionable? Sure. And I think this is uh, exactly when we use the words like um, prevention or early intervention or starts to place the person not in their illness, but place them as a person in the context of their community, in the context of their culture, and in their context of just being human. So, um, you know, without a house, not a lot you can do to um, have maximal health and or mental health. And it feels really big, but it's not. I think we know that there are a lot of philanthropists who work in the area of housing or criminal justice or poverty, education. And if they're working in those areas, quite frankly, they're working in mental health. They just don't call it mental health. And so the question now becomes, how do we help because, uh, and again, I'm, I'm going to philanthropy, not just because that's part of my job, but I'm going to philanthropy because it can kickstart things that government also can be doing or should be doing. So if, if work is already happening in housing, how does it become mental health and housing? Doing it from a cultural lens and also from lived experience of what folks with lived experience would be looking for in um, housing and housing support. One thing to have the house, another thing to have the support to maintain and live in the house. Um, the other piece I would say is that a lot of times we look at systems as that's where the care and response is going to be. And we also need to look at the community in which people live. How does the community also become part of the natural supports for the person. So when we think about things like peer supports, community health workers, promotoras, things like this, health navigators, that those folks are not situated at a mental health center. They may not be situated at the primary care. They may be at the barbershop. They may be at the church. They may be at the uh, YMCA or the community center, or even what we call street outreach, kind of working where people are versus always also having people come to us um, is another way to think about some of the strategies that are effective in meeting people where they are. Ashwin, with all with all that we've learned, you know, this year tragically again about the broken relationship between you know police and communities of, of color and all the attention that's being paid on that is. Do you have any optimism in a sense right now that there is a possibility now to push more for for genuine change? 
I feel a great deal of momentum here and a great deal of interest. I feel there's a great deal of interest also in the conversation that this report also highlights, which is how does this in interact with and intersect with our calls for wider police reform and our wider calls for racial justice? I do feel optimistic that there's a moment here that we need to capitalize on because there's also this wider public conversation about mental health that's happening. This is an opportunity, this conversation, to, to bring those things in line, use the momentum we have around a wider public conversation about mental health, loneliness, addiction, belonging, and say, what about this? What about this segment of this, which actually intersects with much higher visibility conversations around police reform, criminal legal reform, and racial justice. But it needs to move out of the conversation space and into the action space as soon as possible. And that only happens with the right resources. Ultimately, people need to be funded to change systems and need to, be, need to have the right rules and regulations to change those systems. And so that has to accompany all of this groundswell of momentum. Karis, I'd just like to hear your, do, do you think that there's a little more openness? I mean, it's come from such a dark place, unfortunately, but that there is more of a possibility now to, to push for some actual, like some genuine change on a larger level? So I'm going to say yes and, <laughs> which really is yes, but um, yes and uh, th there is. I think, I think really 988, um, the new suicide prevention and mental health crisis lifeline number sort of is spurring people to think about this not as just a number, but as a systematic reform. This is great, and that's the and part, is um, ensuring that when you look around the table at who's kind of thinking about these reforms and policies and program decisions and implementation, evaluation, et cetera, who's at the table? Who don't you see at the table? If you do not see people of color, if you do not see people with disabilities, because I'll say too, when you've got multiple disabilities, including having a mental health condition, if you do not see people who um, you know, identify LGBTQ2SI, et cetera, if you, don't, if you don't see all of this at the table, then yeah, best go get another table or go sit at another table. I'm not going to say invite people to your table because we're having our conversations. Come don't to even bring table. a folding chair. You're not yeah, going to Don't even bring that. a folding don't chair. Like, just like, not down that table. Come on over to our table because we're having these conversations. And many times we're trying to figure out how do we bring our folding chair? And we're done bringing our folding chair, quite frankly. We're like having our own table over here. Come and join our table. Hear what we're talking about. Hear how we're talking about it. Because I think think that's the part that's missing. On many of the 988 implementation calls, I rarely have seen where the voice of people with lived experience and people with lived experience who the intersectionality that I just talked about, where are they? They're not there. So trains left the station, time to kind of like pull the on the train, you know, the emergency stop and get some people on your train or hop off that train and get on the right train. So many analogies, trains, tables, you get what I'm saying. They're all good ones. Uh, but it's it is, I mean, depressing, but not surprising, I guess, to hear um, Christina that this message of nothing about us without us is still not being heard loudly enough, it sounds like. I've been through the same situation with Karis, where I was on the mayor's um, task force of crisis prevention, crisis prevention and response task force, where we had about 80 people coming, but it was not people with titles. It was like um, Department of Homeless Services. It was like 
correction department, the FDNY, mayor's department, mayor's office, and they had a sprinkle and community organization they had a sprinkle of few little peers and a few little black people in the room. And I was one of the little sprinkle, I was a sprinkled black person in the room with a mental health condition, right? And so it's like anytime they had asked us for like suggestions or anything, if I gave my recommendations, it was like ignored. Like no one even knew I existed in the room. Um, so it was just like a waste of my time. And like she mentioned about those chairs, it's like, I really want to be at the table because I know nothing about us without us. And I know how I can make systemic change because I know I've been through the system, through the criminal justice system. I've been through housing. I've been through everything. And I know where the cracks in the systems are. And I know how to make those systemic changes, but they don't really care. It's like a battle. Racism, poverty, lack of employment, um, you know, lack of food and healthcare insurance, and then um, police interactions, police interactions for black folks, you know, dying at a 50% higher rate, and then add in a mental illness, then it gets tenfold that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough life out there being a black person. And, you know, we have to work together to come up with um, solutions that are community-based and systems-based that really maximize our uh, mental well-being or our well-being, our whole well-being. That was my conversation with Karis Myrick, the last voice you heard there, the co-director of the Mental Health Strategic Impact Initiative at the Jed Foundation. You also heard from Christina Sparrick, a mental health advocate and trained peer, and Dr. Ashwin Vassen, the president and CEO of Fountain House. The report they contributed to, which you can find at fountainhouse.org, is called From Harm to Health, Centering Racial Equity and Lived Experience in Mental Health Crisis Response. It's part of the Front End Project, and that's led by Fountain House in collaboration with the Center for Court Innovation, the W. Hayward Burns Institute, the Technical Assistance Collaborative, and the Mental Health Strategic Impact Initiative with support from the Ford Foundation. My thanks for the impetus behind this episode to my colleague, Julian Adler, and thank you to Mary Crowley for helping to make it happen. The episode was edited and produced by me. Emma Dayton is our VP of Outreach. Samiha Mia is our Director of Design. Our music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com, and our show's founder is Rob Wolf. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation, Find out more about us at courtinnovation.org. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.